Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Our guest today is someone who needs little introduction, David M. Addison, travel writer, raconteur and author of Exploring the NC500. His account of the historical and cultural details of the North Coast 500 route, the now famous road trip which takes in the North Highlands of Scotland. So David, what made you want to write a book about the North Coast 500 route? Actually, it was the brainchild of my esteemed publisher. Having written three books on Italy, one on Menorca and one on Cuba, not forgetting the two innocent books which are set in Montana, it did seem a trifle perverse to have written quite a lot about the Italian Renaissance and the Romans, for example, and nothing at all about the land of my birth, its landscape, its people, and its history. And so I did, and I'm very glad that I did too. Now, the North Highlands is an area which obviously has a very rich heritage. What would you say were the major defining characteristics of the region? You could say that the NC 500 consists of two parts, the East Coast and the West Coast. The East Coast is less scenic, but has a great deal of history attached to it, which is not to say that the West does not have its own historical tales to tell, but it is much better known for its superb scenery. Actually, The difference between the two parts becomes marked after Betty Hill, where the single track road begins, and culminates in the Bilach the Pass of the Cattle, one of the highest roads in Scotland. We travelled anti-clockwise, and it's the best way to approach the pass, with a splendid view from the top down to Loch Kishon. My advice would be, if you're travelling clockwise, is to drive to the top and drive down again, just for the view. Now, your book discusses a great number of different historical characters and tales of Scotland's history to take place in the region. What would you say were the individual tales that fascinated you the most? (sighs) That is a very difficult question. Like being restricted to eight records on a desert island. Certainly, one of the most memorable and curious was the Stroma mummies. Stroma is an island in the Pentland Firth between the mainland and Orkney. On that island is the Kennedy Mausoleum, and one enterprising gent of that ilk, Murder Kennedy to be precise, put on a show for visitors. Because of the salty air, the bodies were pretty well preserved. Murdoch placed his father's hand next to his temple, then pressed his foot, and the body bent at the waist and performed a salute. For after, he played his thumb like a drum. One day, his dad's head fell off, but Murdoch kept working him in death. I choose my words carefully. Not to death, because he was dead already. Unfortunately, you can't visit the mausoleum anymore, as it was vandalised in 1786. The island was abandoned in 1962. Another curious tale is the one concerning Janet Horne, 
who was the last witch to be burned at the stake in 1727 in Donagh. She had a daughter with a deformed hand, supposedly because Janet turned her into a pony and showed her to meet the devil. They were arrested, but the daughter managed to escape somehow. But poor Janet was stripped, rolled in tar and burned alive. A stone marks the spot. Now, th this is not really a tale, but what did fascinate me was the dogskin boy which I encountered at the Strathnaver Museum. There are wooden bungs where poor Fido's head and legs used to be. The skin was covered in tar and inflated. It was attached to fishing nets and the idea was as they filled with fish they were kept afloat by the boy. The most unusual use I've ever heard of man's best friend being put to. I could go on but I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to give too much away. Hopefully that's enough to whet the listener's appetite. Now, I know that you conducted a great deal of research in the writing of your book. Were there any particular historical facts which struck you as being particularly noteworthy? Yes, um, I was intrigued to learn about the Invergordon Mutiny, the last in naval history and the first since the Spent Head and the Noor in 1797. It took place on the 11th September 1931 when 15 warships arrived for naval exercises. It was in response to Ramsay MacDonald's national government's austerity measures after the Great Depression. Admiral's pay was to be cut by 7%, while those who joined before 1925 were to lose a whopping 25%. The strike or mutiny was resolved by a maximum cut of 10%. Despite promises of no reprisals, 200 men were discharged, including their leader, Leo Wincott. He went on to fight against Franco in Spain, ended up in Leningrad at the time of the siege, became a Soviet citizen, only to fall foul of Stalin, and ended up in a gulag. He was released in 1958 and died in 1983. He led an interesting life, you may say. Another thing I learned was it was the Duchess of Sutherland who was the real villain of the piece as far as the clearances were concerned, along with her agents Patrick Seller and James Locke. The Duke gets the blame for what he called improvements. A monument was created to him four years after his death on the summit of Ben Braggy, and it's nicknamed the Manny by the locals. Tenants were expected to stump up part of the cost for it. Part of the inscription reads, He was a, a quote, noble and judicious, kind and liberal landlord. I think that was adding a bit of insult to injury, don't you think? Then there is the Grunard Island of Loch Broom. 
It was chosen for chemical warfare tests developed by the boffins at Porton Down in Wiltshire. Eighty sheep were tethered and sacrificed, and volume 14578 was unleashed from a tower above their unsuspecting heads. The sheep died three days later of internal hemorrhaging and were bleeding from the mouth. The plan was to dump the bodies at the bottom of the cliff and blow it up and bury them. It didn't work. Some sheep were washed up on the mainland. A scapegoat was found in the shape of a Greek freighter and accused of throwing infected carcasses overboard. The island was put into quarantine. In 1986, at the cost of half a million pounds, it was decontaminated in earnest and declared clean. One thing that did occur to me on reading your book was the sheer number of memorable characters that you encountered along your journeys. Were there any particular ones that you'd like to talk about? <sighs> so, so many. Where to start? Well, there was Murder Kennedy, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, but another eccentric was Thomas Urquhart, um, who lived in the early, who was born in the early 17th century. I met him, so to speak, at the Cromarty Courthouse. He was a bit of an intellectual and thought spelling, which hadn't been codified yet, should be based upon Latin and Greek origins, which gave rise to the unpronounceable titles he gave to his books. The first being a tract on trigonometry, Trisot et As. Did I say more? He translated Rabelais, who was an ex-monk, who wrote bawdy tales. Only Sir Thomas didn't think they were bawdy enough, and doubt Rabelais, Rabelais by adding 70,000 words of his own. He wanted to create a universal language too. I can't even pronounce its name. But to quote Sir Thomas, it hath 11 genders, Seven moods, four voices, and ten cases besides the nominative. To be honest, I think he was having us all on, having a bit of a joke, a sort of eccentric prankster, if you like. He was a committed royalist. At the Battle of Worcester, where the king's troops were defeated, his manuscript fell into enemy hands, and as Sir Thomas put it, were used for posterior purposes. He rewrote his works and died happy in Holland, where he was exiled when he heard of the king's restoration. Also from Cromarty is poor Hugh Miller, the famous geologist who blew his brains out in Portobello on Christmas Eve in 1856, aged 54. Another notable suicide was Sir Hector MacDonald, who was born in Dingwall in 1853. He joined the army and rose to be a major general and aide-de-camp to Queen Victoria. He blew his brains out in a hotel in Paris in 1903. He is buried in Edinburgh. You may recognise him if you remember 
the bottles of camp coffee that you can still see around like nowadays. Anyway, he is the man in the kilt uh, featured on that bottle. Then there is the famous Canadian explorer, Sir Alexander Mackenzie, born in Stornoway, but buried in Och in the Black Isle. That's spelt E-V-O-C-H, by the way. It's worth mentioning as well, in the passing, so to speak, James Anderson of Respond on Loch Erbol. He was born in 1746 and died in 1828. The reason that he gets into my book and his claim to fame is because he was married three times and had 21 children, or at least his wives had. One of them was an answer of Robert Louis Stevenson, by the way. Uh, then there is Donald Mackay, a.k.a. the Wizard of Ray, R-E-A-Y that is. He met the devil in Padua where he was running a course in the black arts. The course was free, except the last to leave had to pay with his soul. Donald pointed to his shadow on the wall and said, Deal tack most and slipped out the door when the devil wasn't looking. The devil pursued Donald back to Ray, and one day Donald was taking his dog along the beach near new smooth caves, when his dog ventured into the cave and came out hairless, from which Donald deduced that the devil had pursued him to Ray. Just then, a cock crowed, and the devil burst through the roof of the caves, accompanied by three of his hellish escort. And that's why you can see the holes in Smooth Cave to this very day. Actually, these holes were a very handy place for the highwayman Donald McMurdo, a.k.a. McMurchow, who killed 18 people and chucked their bodies down the holes. People were too scared of the cave's reputation or connection with the devil to go anywhere near it. He was well known for his misdeeds, and one day the local minister, Alec Monroe, urged him to repent. McMurdo took umbrage at this, and after the minister left, he sent his sons after him with instructions to dispatch the minister and bring back his heart. The sons thought better of this and killed a sheep and presented its heart to their father instead. Quoth the father on seeing the heart. I always knew the Munros were cowards, but I never knew till now that they had the heart of a sheep. He died in 1623 and left a £1,000 for the building of a church at Balnakeel, as long as he was buried inside. You can see his tomb there. The story goes that he is buried half in, half out of the church, so the devil could get a hold of him and take him off to hell. Lastly, I'll just like to mention the Bran Seer, a.k.a. Kenneth Mackenzie, who was born in Uig, on the Isle of Lewis, about 1630. There's a memorial to him at Chandry Point at Fort Rose. According to his biographer, Alex Mackenzie, he predicted such things as black rain that would 
make-up between rich, the Battle of Culloden, the Highland Clearances, and the Caledonian Canal. He wrote in Gaelic, so something may have been lost in translation, I really couldn't say. He made his predictions by looking through an adder stone. That is adder stone, not Addison. It was revered by the Druids, a knot of serpents bound together by slime and saliva, the hole created by their tongues as they tried to get themselves out of the unholy mess they found themselves in. When he picked it up and looked through it, he was blinded, but was given the gift of second sight instead as a sort of compensation. Uh, he was put into a spiked barrel of boiling tar by the jealous wife of the third Earl of Seaforth, Isabella, his employer, who asked the seer what her husband was up to in Paris, where he was on a business trip, supposedly. The seer reluctantly admitted that the Earl was having a dalliance with another lady. It's a bit much shooting the messenger like that, don't you think? Before he died, he flung the other stone as far from him as he could. So, if you go, when you go to Channery Point, be very careful what you pick up there. Well, having never thrown an Adderstone in the past, I have to ask, is that with or without the hat? <laughs> what, is it, what is it acceptable distance to throw an Adderstone? Um, <laughs> I, I would throw, an ex I, I would say, with the hat on, you should throw it as far as you can, preferably into the sea. Well, given all of your globetrotting adventures in years past... Has your North Coast 500 experience made you feel more inclined to seek out further Scottish road trips in the future? Oh, most certainly. I've been very pleased with the way that the NC500 book has been selling. And I have just completed another book, a sort of companion volume, if you like, uh, I sort of call it a big sister to the NC500 because it's longer and it's got lots of photographs in it uh, and it's uh, in, it, entitled Exploring the SWC300. David, thank you very much for joining us today and talking a bit about exploring the NC500. It's a book which covers not just a great deal of geographical distance but a great deal of entertaining historical accounts, unexpected cultural observations, and a great deal that is entertaining, fascinating, and in many ways unexpected. Thank you so much for having come along today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tom. I've enjoyed it. Exploring the NC500, Travelling Scotland's Route 66, is available to buy from all good independent booksellers and online retailers worldwide. Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you'll tune in again soon.